1: Hey there, hockey fans, and welcome back to Rotowire's signature NHL Hockey Pod podcast with Statsman and AJ. Friends, I'm Paul Bruno in Toronto, Ontario, and you can follow me at Statsman22, and my co-host is AJ Scholes, who's a great follow, at AJ AJScholes24, based in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, near Rotowire headquarters over in Madison. You know, folks, just because you haven't heard us on this platform over the last couple of weeks uh, in between rounds... I want to invite you to follow us on NR exploits. We have become a smash on the DraftKings pro- profile and platform. AJ, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what's going on there and how frequently we're on and, and where people can find us?
2: Yeah, if you go to uh, DraftKings' YouTube channel, The um, the Sweat, uh, I believe the, the program is called, but it's their live uh, YouTube channel every day uh, from... Uh, I I believe it's, I got to do my math here, Paul. It's 11, uh, 11 to noon uh, Eastern time. You can find us over there and uh, we're, we're on pretty much, we've been on pretty much every day the last couple of weeks talking about hockey, uh, either the games that are happening that day, uh, you know, futures uh, around the corner. We do touch on a little bit of DFS in addition to some, uh, some betting uh, options there too. So yeah, it's a great thing to to check out and having a lot of fun doing it. it. You know, other than the fact that I'm, you know, stuck with you every single day, I, <laughs> Like You know, I need some space. You know, just weekly is good enough for me, Paul, but, uh, you know, it's it's been worth it. It's been a good time, and uh yeah, we're having fun over there.
1: Well, you're a lucky duck. You're even going to have fun at our annual Rotowire Mixer, and because I'm north of the border, I can't join you guys this year, and it's it's killing me. It's killing my son, who is also employed at Rotowire, and our respective significant others were all really not looking forward to missing out on this whole thing, but we're looking for better days ahead, and uh, the whole COVID environment seems to be getting a little bit easier to deal with, I'll say, uh, as we are in the on the verge of summer here, and uh, things are looking better in that regard. So really, a lot of things to feel positive about, particularly if you're a fan of one of the four remaining teams, and that takes us into today's show, where we're going to look at three different things uh, as our focus. We're going to review the four series that happened in the second round of the playoffs, and we're going to review all the award nominees with our predictions included. And then we'll also preview the third round which of the playoffs, which got underway over the weekend with game one between Tampa and the Islanders with a bit of a surprising result there that we'll talk about in a little while. The other semifinal begins tonight with Montreal in Las Vegas. And I'm hoping that the Knights just pound the Canadians really quickly and get them out of my misery uh, so, uh, so we can, I can go on with a normal hockey life because too much Montreal is not good for this boy right here. AJ, the second round w- featured four series that uh, were very, very interesting and, uh, as it turns out, not very easy to call uh, properly or get, get the right outcome uh, if you look at what we thought was going to happen, the way things played out. So a number of interesting topics, I think, when, with each breakdown. We'll start with the Boston Islanders set. In the regular season, the Islanders won the series 5-3, to three, but the Bruins won the last three games, and that gave us both reason to think that Boston was going to have a bit of a uh, an easier time with with the Islanders instead they got bounced in 6 games and uh, we we were two games into that series the last time we and I spoke on this podcast but uh, the last four came out mostly in favor of the Islanders and they walked away with this set your observations of uh, a 6 game series win by the New York Islanders
2: I think the biggest thing is you know we talk so much about how the Islanders are a defensive setup and goaltending and and all that's true um, but they definitely found their offense. You know, in that in that six game series, you've got Kyle Palmieri turning back the clock with four goals and two assists. Matthew Barzell finally getting on on the score sheet there with three goals along the way. Uh and and uh JG Peugeot continued to thrive and and that's not even mentioning the second line. A little bit cooler, uh the second line than than they had been in the previous series, but you know Bailey Nelson and Bolivier again combining uh, for for another uh, 13 points there in those six games. So really, I, I think the offense uh, continues to roll, and I, I think that's what's been helping them. You know, if you've got Peugeot and Palmieri going, that's three scoring lines, and that's very hard to match up with for anybody. And and I think that's what happened in Boston. You know, that's a team led by one uh, one line there, and then they've got they added a second line with Craigie and Hall. Um, So they they were definitely better there this year, Uh, but then it tapered off after that even even further. So I, I think it was just a matchup nightmare offensively, really, more than anything
1: else. And AJ, speaking about nightmares, you didn't mention the goalie situation for the Islanders. Sorokin gave you nightmares with uh, the way they, he walked over, helped them walk over the Penguins, and then they turned away from him and they they gave the reins to his partner, Barlamov. Semyon Barlamov took the reins in the series against Boston. I can't remember the last time a uh, team won two series, but they did it with two separate goalies. That was a very intriguing aspect to me. Care to comment on that part?
2: Well, I think, you know, we, I think Varlamov, you know, was probably going to be the guy, um, but, you know, I I believe if I'm recalling back correctly, he was dealing with a a bit of a knock before that first, uh, that first series against the Penguins. And so I think the fact that he was, you know, uh, feeling a little bit better, you know, he he did come back, gave up the two goals, did okay. in, in game two against Pittsburgh really struggled in game three. So they let him kind of sit and, and take a break. And, and since coming back and taking over, he's been phenomenal. Just one loss uh, in those those seven games there. So really, I think it's the right call. Um, certainly, it, it was an interesting choice to, to flip. Um, but that first game against Boston for Sorokin wasn't great either. He gave up five goals. And so... Um, certainly they they had reason to switch
1: and you know later on this summer we're going to come back with some news and views about the free agency situation for all teams the NHL but uh, the core of the Boston Bruins is getting a little older and you heard some little whispers coming out of there that Tuukka Rask is reconsidering his options going forward it's doubtful that he's at the end of the line but you don't know he's a a bit of an, an enigmatic sort uh, from time to time, and I wonder if, if this is his swan song, and then also you have to look at the fact that Patrice Bergeron is getting on in years, um, Mar- Marchand is in his uh, early 30s, so he's got some runway left, I- I'm sure. Uh, you wonder whether Taylor Hall re with this team, so there are a number of question marks in the Boston landscape that lead me to believe that it's going to be hard for them to be among the, the leaders of their the Atlantic division when it does reconvene in what we assume is a return to the divisions that we're familiar with.
2: Well, you mentioned Rask, you know, possibly retiring. I, I think the bigger concern is, is this offseason surgery. You know, yeah. he's going to be out until a, a january at the earliest um could even linger into february and at that point like does boston even want him back you know do um you know from the is obviously he still has some in the tank he, he played really well considering his injury but like do you want to keep him as like the, on ltir for the start of the year after signing him and then then you have to figure out how to work him back into the mix. You know, are they going to go with Jeremy Swayman? Are they going to bring in a veteran um, other than Yaroslav Halak? It w- is Halak even interested in resigning after kind of getting edged out here? Um, so, yeah, there there are a lot of questions. And that hip surgery has complicated things to the nth degree for the Boston Bruins.
1: And, I mean, you got the Taylor Hall issue, AJ. He came there as a, a free agency uh Gun for hire at the trade deadline, let's face it, brought stability to their second scoring line but for a while, but then he went MIA in the second round of the series, and, and the the Bruins hierarchy had to have watched that too and said, you know what, are we going to plunk big money on, down on this guy, or are we going to kind of spread the wealth in uh, terms of... Uh, spending a little bit more on the average player that they can bring back. So really a lot of decisions, not just the goalie mix, but also what what happens to Taylor Hall. He's expressed a desire that he'd want to come back. He, found, he felt that he found a home in Boston. But uh, I, I think there's two sides to that situation, and, and we'll see how that plays out over the summer. But uh, a lot of intrigue around the Bruins as they fade into the sunset. Meanwhile, we're, we'll get more into the Islanders when we preview the next series, AJ. But the other set that we want to talk about, Uh, uh, there's other sets in the first round we want to talk about. The next one is Colorado and Las Vegas. The first game of that series was a blowout. Colorado just roasted Vegas 7-1. to But I thought it was a case where where the Knights were really not ready to play after the grueling six-game set that they had against Minnesota while Colorado had a cakewalk in their first round over St. Louis. I think that had a lot to do with the Game 1 result. And then halfway through Game 2 is when this series turned. I think everybody who watched it closely, including you and I, AJ, would would come to that consensus. And, and Vegas showed not only could they play with Colorado, but they could outplay Colorado steadily, and uh, the goaltending was in their favor. Marc-Andre Fleury, on top of his game, outdueled his counterpart, uh, Grubauer, at the other end of the ice. I wouldn't have seen that coming as decisively as it was at the end of of this series, I'll say. uh, Those are my early observations. AJ, what stood out to you in this six-pack of games that saw Vegas win this series?
2: Well I think you know you mentioned you know you you were a bit surprised by uh Mark Andre Fleury winning winning that goalie du- duel certainly i I was not as you like to uh, say me supposedly being the, the president of this <laughs> fan club there um, no no truth to those rumors but uh, look the you know the thing is this is not a particularly deep Colorado team I mean we we knew that going into it. And they had some guys that stepped up uh, in the postseason here. Brandon Saad had four goals in that, that six game series. Um, they got production from some blue liners and, and obviously kill McCarr. We expected that, but Devin Taves shipped in four points. Um, but, you know, especially when you don't have Nazem Kadri who figures to be when available your second line, um, your second line center that just, you know, that's, really going to hurt your depth that that was already not great um, to be perfectly blunt uh, regarding this team. And so I, I think that's something that they maybe need to look to um, kind of figuring out is how to get a third line. You know, if, if Cadre's healthy, they, they have two lines, that, you know, obviously one's way better than the other and, and that's not going to change, but if they can get themselves a third line, I think that's where you're going to see this team progress to, to the next level.
1: Well, AJ, I, I want to talk about the cadre situation because I saw this guy this play out twice in Toronto where he got suspended in the playoffs consecutive seasons with the Leafs manning their second line. And they were no match for the Bruins once that went down. And I think the same thing happened against Vegas. And not a lot, not enough was made of that, I think, in the media. We didn't touch on it here. And you, I'm glad you brought it up because we can uh, mull it over a little bit in this spot too. But I think that was a key aspect in this outcome because without him, Nuchushkin and O'Connor didn't do much of anything. Saad as well on the wing. Burakowski. they didn't get a lot of production from anybody outside that top line. As you suggested, it looked like it became a one-line team. And once you've got a one line team in the playoffs, you can really focus your energies in terms of finding ways to minimize the damage from them. And that's exactly what the Knights went and did. Uh, Nathan McKinnon is one of the best players in hockey, but he's not a one man gang. And the same, you know, we saw this play out with guys like Matthews. and and, and McDavid in other series where the opposition was able to key on one line and they were able to neutralize them effectively. And that's what happened in this series to really make it a decisive turn in favor of the Knights and uh, allowed them to end this series. Uh, I thought it was going to go the distance, but uh, uh, certainly I didn't, I didn't, I didn't concede the series to To either side I thought it could be be a coin flip but it was rather decisive at the end of of days and and I think that that's a big reason why that uh, the second line was neutralized and the one line aspect of the the opponent allowed for Vegas to run the table there pretty much the rest of the way Tampa and Carolina this was a series that I anticipated greatly it was a 4-4 split in the regular season AJ Uh, Tampa won this rather quickly though Uh, were you surprised by that Absolutely,
2: I mean, I, I you know Carolina won that division for a reason, um, and and they had the, the the guys capable of doing it um, if they could produce. But you know, a guy like Dougie Hamilton getting one goal, no assists in five games—that's that's certainly not going to cut it for them. Uh, Andres Sveshnikov, Sebastian Ajo, Chivo Taravina and all, all did fine. Thirteen points combined through five games. That's that's perfectly. Uh, good for them, but after that, it it really drops off. You know, Jordan Stahl had three points. Uh, Jasper Fast had two. I mean, you, you're getting a sense of what happened here, and and a lot of that has to do with the net mining on on the other end of the ice. Andre Vasilevsky uh, was just uh, on top of his game. He's just a shade like the smallest of margins behind carry Price um, for the best save percentage in the postseason at point nine three four. And he really just took over over the series. You know, we saw games one and two. Carolina only give allows one or only scores one goal. Game five, they don't score at all. I mean, that's just Uh, vintage Andre Vasilevsky in in goal there.
1: Yeah, and I think not enough was made of a comment that Dougie Hamilton said at the end of the series. We were beaten by a team that was $18 million over the cap, AJ, and we got to talk about that aspect because Nikita Kucherov has had an outstanding playoff. He's got points in 10 of 12 games and was a real factor in this series. He and Braden Point handled much of the offense that Tampa threw at Carolina. The, The Canes just didn't have... Enough answers for all the offensive weapons that were thrown against them. You mentioned the, the defensive side of the puck is where this series was actually won by by Tampa with their goaltending and so on. But they did get some top notch efforts from their high end players up front as well. And I wonder if there's going to be some talk in the off season by the NHL powers that be to prevent this cap circumvention manipulation use of of long-term injury replacement money uh, to level the playing field because right now it's the rich clubs that can take advantage of this
2: well you know we've talked about this before and i i just don't see it yeah you can kind of use it if if the situation happens but look would they have preferred to have nikita kucherov like healthy all season long absolutely like why why would you not want that guy in your lineup and so i you know I, yeah, they could look at maybe coming up with something. But then the flip side of that is if you, you know, you're going to have to do. So say you get rid of it entirely and maybe that's not the extreme they'll go to. But so Kucherov gets hurt. Um, there's, you know, nine and a half million dollars of, of dead money on their cap. Can they even call like they're going to have to spend the teams will have to spend to 78 million or something so that you have two million available for some less than, you know, quality player to just call, you know, be called up and fill the gap there. So, um, it's going to really, if, so, you know, if a star gets hurt, that team season's basically done. Um, if you don't have any, any flexibility on it. So it's not a, it's maybe not a perfect system either way. They probably have to come up with something, uh, in the middle here, but, uh, I, you know, I just don't think, it's that big of a deal um, overall for for me you know the the yes, he missed the entire season, comes in you add him to the playoffs and it's a big advantage but again, he it's not like he wasn't injured and they just made it up right um, And you know the fact of the matter is any team that's lost a star player like that for an extended period of time, would have preferred to have the guy available all season long. I think there's no arguing that.
1: And then just as we did a post-mortem on the Boston Bruins, I think one is in order for Carolina, but it's got a different outlook completely for me, AJ, and I don't, don't, don't know that you'll disagree. But this is a team that took some big strides this season, and they learned a very valuable lesson in the playoffs. I'll say a lot of young guys here uh, – getting their first turn as frontliners to lead the attack. They had one of the more potent offenses. They had a very sound six-pack on defense, and they had a pretty good one-two punch in the net. So a lot of pieces are in place. But is it a matter of just uh, having to go through the process that so many other teams have done before they achieved the ultimate success in the playoffs? Is this just a big uh, step in the learning curve for Carolina? Or do you think they have some serious holes to fill? I don't see any weaknesses. They addressed their second-line center by adding Vinny Trocek. He was nicked up a little bit in these playoffs. Jordan Stahl gave them outstanding work as a third-line center, playing well at both ends of the ice. And so the offense was in order. Uh, Jacob Slavin, Dougie Hamilton, Brett Pesci, that's a trio that any team would love to have on their blue line. And then in nets, Nadelkovic and Mrazek, a solid one, too. So I don't think there's a lot missing there. Uh, but uh, is there a missing link that you think that they have to ha- find before they go to the next step? Or is it just a matter of time for this club? Well, the missing
2: link could be Dougie Hamilton. I mean, he's yeah. going to be a free agent. They just announced it or it just came out today that they're going to give him permission to talk to other teams right away. Um, so, you know, for some sort of maybe sign and trade uh, deal here, if he if he can find a deal, you know, the, I don't think it guarantees that he's gone. Um, there's certainly the possibility that this allows him to kind of test the market and and see what's out there and then decide, you know, oh, well, uh, I'm not going to make that much more as a as a free agent. So I'll, I'll stay um, for whatever Carolina's offering him. But that that what happens there is is a big concern because you mentioned they do have. A couple other capable guys. No, uh, you know their oldest uh, blue liner right now is uh, Jake Gardner at just 30 years of age. So he's got plenty of room there uh, as well. Um, you know they're, they're not an old group by any stretch of the imagination. The Delcovich seems to be the netminder of the future. Uh, I guess there is questions. You know, does Morazic want to come back to be the number two? Does James Rhymer? factor in as well. So there there are some questions, but I think for the most part I agree with you, Paul. I, I think for the bulk of the lineup they're pretty much set, but there are some big pieces um, that need to be sorted out in, in the offseason here.
1: Jeez, just a sec. i got to take out a couple of barbs from my side. You threw out the names of Two former Leafs in that segment, and the Leafs are long gone in these playoffs. i got to hear Jake Gardner and James Reimer references from you. My God. <laughs> Holy cow. Anyway, and to make matters worse, we got to talk now about the Montreal Canadiens again and, and their sweep over the Winnipeg Jets. Four games, AJ, and uh, nobody saw this coming, even the Montreal's ardent, most ardent fans. But I did a Spockian eyebrow after that first game when they took the Duke 5-3 to three over Winnipeg, and I thought, oh, don't tell me what's happening now. And then we saw Carey Price basically take over and limit the, the Jets to three goals over the next three games. And in, in the last seven games, the Canadians haven't even trailed in a game, and they're on the verge of an NHL all-time record for going without uh, playing with, with the lead and without trailing in a game for an extended period of time in the postseason. I think if they go to the end of this game and take it wire to wire, they do set the record, in fact. So a stunning outcome uh, from a team that is the, was the lowest-seeded team low, in terms of the overall standings in these playoffs. They're now one of the final four clubs, just to stick another dagger in me, I guess. And uh, <laughs> But uh, all credit to them. In all seriousness, AJ, they got four lines going. And when they showed the ice time of these lines throughout the playoffs – I saw very little in terms of a disparity between the first-liners and the fourth-liners in terms of the overall ice time that they were giving out up front, and that was a big part of their success, that they were just able to roll the the lines. Meanwhile, Winnipeg, like the Leafs before them, lost their center in Game 1 when Mark Scheifele wound up being suspended and thrown out of that game. And for the balance, essentially, of the Jets' remaining playoff games, it made uh, them a one-line team again uh montreal's second straight series where they basically had that opportunity to negate one scoring line and and really uh leverage their advantage in the nets uh, as well and and that was the same recipe that they used i don't know if they're in position to do that again uh, starting the series tonight but when we look at the the way this series broke down i think that's a big reason why the outcome was the way it was yeah, I
2: absolutely agree with every everything you said there, Paul. For me, I mean, this series was over uh, the minute Mark Scheifele decided to blow up Jake Evans. I mean, that was that was the end of this series. It, it's not a team that is built um, to to weather depth problems. You know, the Jets they limped into the end of the season without Nikolai Ailers, and Ailers and is a fantastic player, but he's certainly no Mark Shifley, and so you you lose a bigger. Uh, A bigger team here that, uh, or a bigger player rather here that, you know, really uh, just made their top six really non-existent. And and to your point about Montreal and the minutes, if you look at the minutes for guys in this series, uh, no forward logged over 18 minutes a game. Exactly to your point, Paul. It's even distribution. Um, Actually, Jake Evans is the one guy that crept up towards that at 1755, but then he didn't play. Uh, the other games and the other three games in the series. So, I mean, they, they are rolling, as you said, those, those four lines they're getting production across the board there. I mean, yeah, primarily right now, it seems to be to Suzuki and, and Cole Caulfield that are, that are leading the way, but you know, guys like Brendan Gallagher have points, Eric Stahl has points, Corey Perry. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, and, and uh, throughout the lineup that
1: they dispatch the, the Winnipeg Jets. And, uh, you know, we have to say something more about the Jets uh, as we write them off for another season. Uh, it was a team that was threatening the North Division all year long uh, and before they faded down the stretch with a late-season losing streak, and they didn't really rebound from that too well. And one of the guys that came under a lot of criticism in the playoffs in the late season was Pierre-Luc Dubois. And I'm shocked, A.J., that this guy didn't have a much better outcome to his year, even though, even when he was handed more responsibility in the playoffs, didn't respond and was moved around to try and get him to play on the wing uh, instead of his natural center position, but didn't deliver the goods. And if there's really one concern there, one player that really didn't live up to expectation and really let down his, his teammates, it's Dubois, and, and he is uh, justified in all the criticism that was heaped on him, they have one of the best goalies in hockey, in Connor Hellebuck, but defense is an area where i think they're going to look to upgrade beyond because beyond neil pionk and josh morrissey there wasn't a lot there in terms of quality certainly logan stanley is a big imposing guy on the blue line and he got a couple of goals in a game against the canadians so uh, made his mark in that regard but i think they want to look at upgrading that part of their team more than any other. I think they have a top six pack when they're all healthy. Scheifele's loss was something that nobody anticipated. And uh, so they have a lot of pieces again, going forward, but getting Pierre-Luc Dubois right and, and uh, strengthening up the defense is where I think this team will be focused in the off season.
2: So I disagree, Paul. I don't, I don't hate the defense that they have here. And, you know, yes, they could upgrade, you know, they don't have a big name guy necessarily, or, or even, They've got the two. They could maybe use a a third. Um, But, you know, I I don't hate their defense. I I think the bigger problem for me is they need another, you know, top nine winger so that they can put Pierre-Luc Dubois back at center, have him play with Kyle Connor. And, you know, maybe that's where you put Mason Appleton or Matthew Perot. And then you put Paul Stastny with whoever this top nine winger that you go out and get could be. And that would give them three lines. Um, you know, and and capable of having some more some more depth here. There just isn't enough depth. The the only way they made themselves have a top six is by putting Pierre Luc Dubois or Paul Stastny. They switched it up, putting one of those guys on the wing, and that's not the right solution in my opinion. Um, you know, for you you traded uh, one of the best. You know, he had a rough season, but one of the top wingers in the league. For a center, play the guy at center. I mean, that's that's what you did. If you wanted a winger, you shouldn't have traded away a winger. you <laughs> Brought in a center, let him play center. And so that's what I think they need to do. Is they need a, a top nine, maybe a top six guy, so that they'll have three full packs of, of guys. You know, you'll have he'll miss opening night, but you'll have you know Connor Scheifele, Wheeler. You'll have Ailers. Dubois and and maybe somebody else and then Stastny if he resigns and and one other guy there. And And I think that's the biggest thing that I see as being deficient on this team. There's just not enough depth.
1: Yeah, when they made that trade, you made a great point. Uh, we looked at it and said, boy, look at the center depth that they have on this team. But there wasn't one game where they played the three guys at center uh, from the time the deal was made for whatever reason. They were trying to get uh, load up on the top two lines, and and I think that was a bit of a tactical error. They could have really flexed their muscles on on the center depth and, and filled in on the wings a, a little bit differently is, is the message that I'm I'm echoing, I guess, AJ, in in terms of what you're saying. So uh, we've given our postmortems on a few teams. We've, we've pre, pre, uh, reviewed all the series that happened in that second round. We'll, we'll take a break now, AJ, and then we'll come back, go through the award winners, and then preview the third round, which got underway. So let's take a few minutes for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back to take a look at the remaining teams in our weekly deep dive into key information. You're listening to Podcast with Statsman and AJ. Okay, we're back on podcast with Statsman and AJ to take a look at the 2021 award nominees. A lot of this information was shared during the last few days, and we'll go through a list of all the nominees and all the major trophy winners and give our slant to who we expect to win. A number of players were repeated nominees, multiple nominees, I should say, so you'll hear their information a couple of times. We'll go through this fairly quickly, AJ, and then we'll get on to the next round. The beginning, the first award yeah, that we'll talk about is the Vezina Trophy going to the top goalie. The, the nominees were Marc-Andre Fleury, Philip Grubauer, and Andre Veseleski. No surprise there among these three guys. Uh, you want to break them down, AJ, and, and give us your pick, and I'll echo mine.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, for for me, you know, I think the fact of the matter is it comes down to, uh, you know, games played here. You've got Andre Veseleski played in 42 games picks up the 31 wins that, that leads the way Grubauer with uh, 30 wins, Marc-Andre Fleury with 26. You add on, you know, of the three guys, uh, Grubauer does have the best save percentage at .922, but Vasilevsky comes in just above Fleury at nine two five. before Fleury is .928. The goals against average, that's the one category where he's maybe a little high. Um, you know, compared to the others, he's the only one that's over two. Grubauer comes in with a seven helper or seven shutouts. So um, I think when you, when you break that all down, yes, Vasilevsky had one more win um, than Grubauer, but Grubauer had two more shutouts than him. Better save percentage, better goals against average. Um, and I think it'll be Philip Grubauer that takes it home.
1: I agree with you, AJ. The the uh, He came up out of nowhere this season to dominate the goalie situation, and he had to because he was without a backup, a credible backup, much of the season. And that's something that that you didn't mention, but I will throw in there. Fleury was backed by Robin Leonard. You can make the case that Vasilevsky was only spelled occasionally by Curtis McElhaney there too, but I give Grubauer a ton of credit for for backstopping this team to a dominant division win uh, and uh, rather a strong finish in their division. They tied with uh, Las Vegas in in terms of the overall standings, losing out on tiebreaker, but I, I think that you have to give Actually, Vegas lost out on the tiebreaker, didn't? Columbus got the whole thing, yeah, yep. didn't Okay, so Krubar led his team to the overall flag. Then you can say, and uh, so that, that that deserves a ton of recognition in my in my view. And so I echo, echo your pick that he should have been, should be the guy that that walks away with a trophy over the defending champ Vasilevsky, and certainly an annual. Uh, credible option in Marc-Andre Fleury three top notch goalies to be uh, no question about it the next award that we'll talk about is the MVP vote by the players the top player in the league it's called the Ted Lindsay award after the uh, hall of fame Detroit captain from uh, a bygone era in the 50s the three candidates uh, that make the grade include two of our favorite players Sidney Crosby Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid and uh, AJ. I'll I'll uh, run through the numbers here. Crosby with 24 goals, 38 assists, plus plus uh, 22 power play points and a plus eight. Matthews led the league with 41 goals, 25 assists, a plus thir- uh, 13 power play points and plus 21. And McDavid ran away with the scoring title with 33 goals, 72 assists, 37 power play points and a plus 21. I'm giving this award to Conor McDavid quite simply a highlight reel waiting to happen on a nightly basis. And uh, the distance between him and the next highest point getter, his own teammate, was reminiscent of, of the margin that you used to see for guys like Gretzky and Lemieux. That's the company that McDavid put himself in with the year that he had. Yeah.
2: Well, I always look at MVP, you know, I, maybe I'm a traditionalist in this sense, but most valuable player. If you don't have McDavid, you still got dry side up. If you don't have Matthews during the year, you still had Tavares or, or Marner or a couple of other guys. Crosby put up those numbers playing without of Denny Malcolm for a good chunk of the season. So for me, uh, I, I would pick Sidney Crosby. Now, do I think he's actually going to win? Uh, no, I, I agree. I think ultimately it'll probably be McDavid taking... The Lindsay home for, for the third time. Now, I will say if it is Sidney Crosby, that will put him in a group of just uh, him, Mario Lemieux, and Wayne Gretzky, who have won the Lindsay four or more times. Uh, so I, I think a good case could be made for him as the most valuable
1: player to his team uh, this year. I was wondering how you'd put your spin on this to favor your your guy, and and you did it in fine style. I'm not going to criticize that at all, but it affords me the opportunity to rebut by saying, Austin Matthews had eight more goals than McDavid. They played the same schedule, and in terms of top goal scorers in the league, don't forget Matthews walks away with the Rock and Richard trophy and earned his recognition as one of the top three guys, according to this MVP uh, list that we have read on the Lindsay Award. So, uh, Both our guys looking good uh, as top players in the league in the regular season but they're not playing now <laughs> the Calder trophy the Calder trophy the best rookie on the season AJ there was a goalie and two wingers in this mix so why don't you uh, break it down for us a little bit with uh, the numbers well yeah you know
2: I think uh, the the biggest thing here uh, you know how do you evaluate a winger versus uh, you know versus a goalie so for for Ned, Nedeljkovic um, the biggest thing is you know 15 wins uh, and and a decent, you know, save three shutouts. Um, 1.90 save percentage, 0.932, or 1.90 goals against average, 0.932 save percentage here. So uh, I think it it's trying to evaluate that versus the offensive side of the piece, right? Because clearly, a, a, at least in my opinion, I think it's very clear uh, that from the winger standpoint, Kaprasov outpaced, uh, Nick Robinson here. And, and I think it's it's pretty straightforward in, in that sense that it comes down to whether you want uh, the goalie to win it or the winger. For me, 27 goals on the year, 24 assists for for a 51-point campaign. That's, that's just astronomical for, for a rookie to come in and do that. Robertson, for his part, 17 goals, 28 assists. So I think that he's out of contention for this 100%. Kaprasov's numbers are just so much better than his. So that's where I land. I, I think Kaprasov will take it home. His numbers were just so good. I, I don't think Nedeljkovic played enough, if I'm being totally honest here, during the regular season. And so I, th- I think that's also um, a factor as well here. Uh, like I said, 15 wins, five losses, uh, three overtimes, and in, in just 23 games played. So for me, it's Kaprasov.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you there. He was in- instantly installed as a top six guy. Robertson had to Work his way up to that level, and his full marks for being on this list. But I think the disparity between their goal scoring is indicative of just how important Kaprasov was to that that offense. And uh, he gets the Duke here as the Calder Trophy winner for me as well. The Lady Bing Award, the most genuinely player in the game, gentlemanly player in the game. Uh, this this is basically uh, you score a lot, you don't get in the penalty box too much is the way it breaks down for me and uh, in simple terms. And uh, Austin Matthews is in this mix with against two defensemen. It's not often you see defensemen in, uh, for this trophy. So uh, interesting call there. So if you look at just the offensive numbers, Matthews is the clear winner here, but I'm going to give it up, too, for the defenseman. Jacob Slavin has been a real nice addition ever since he came into the Carolina mix and has been a dominant Defensive defenseman in this league uh, this past season, plus 22, only two penalty minutes. It's hard to play 50 games and only get one minor when you're playing defense against the fleet-footed forwards that come your way on a nightly basis. So that deserves some recognition. And Jared Spurgeon, uh, you can't say enough about what this guy did for his club, too. Minnesota wouldn't have been where they were in the standings without his play. He contributed offensively to the tune of seven goals and 18 assists, nine power play. Point, uh, points on the season six penalty minutes for his ledger so the defensemen who play the game uh, as much as these guys do they get a ton of ice time not creating any fouls against as i say high octane offenses on and fleet forwards every night uh, tip of the hat to both of them but i'm going to go back to my guy austin matthews and say he played against tough checking every night didn't lose his cool all year long and still led the league in goal scoring and uh, he's up there for a couple of awards. I think this is going to be a default pick in his favor because he's going to be up the track on a couple of the other ones where he's nominated. So I think Matthews gets the lady thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to make a case for, um, you know, for Slavin uh, in part due to the, the minutes, right? So he yeah. plays, plays, uh, you know, my, my initial thought was that a defensemen play more minutes as generally how it goes and, and to only get two penalties in 52 games playing big minutes like that. That's huge. But Austin Matthews plays over 20 minutes a night. I mean, 21 and a half is actually right about his average. So, I mean, that that's close to defenseman numbers there uh, in in terms of, of, of that. So I, I do think it has to go to Matthews. I, I don't think you can knock the fact that, um, you know, he plays less minutes than a defenseman because he really doesn't. Um, and so I, I i'll agree with you paul i think austin matthews takes on the lady Bang. your
1: leaf sweater is in the mail buddy sounds good all right <laughs> the selkie award is next the best defensive forward in the league uh there's three candidates here when you think about each of these three guys i think offense too uh, Barkov, bergeron and stone are the nominees aj why don't you break it down and give us your pick and i'll uh, give you my thoughts afterwards
2: yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Bergeron obviously has won this uh, multiple times. I believe four times he's, he's won this uh, Barkov and, and stone uh, not, not so much on, on their side of it. And so I, I, I think you, you know, for me, I think that should be a factor. Um, you know, one of the things that that I'll point out with the Selkie is that um, Bergeron is, is currently tied um, with uh, a, a, you know, a Habs, uh, Habs great, if you will, Bob Ganey for, for four wins. Um, and, and they're tied for the most all time. And so I, I kind of feel like it should maybe stay at four apiece. So for, for me, I'm just going to eliminate Bergeron from the discussion. Uh, if I was a voter, just, just from that standpoint. Um, other than that, you know, I think Barkov and, and Stone have pretty similar numbers. Uh, Stone is a plus 26. He's, a, he's got the best plus minus of these three guys. Uh, put up plenty of offensive points of his own and so for me I think that tips the scales and and I'll go with Mark Stone for this one
1: yeah uh, Bergeron for his part is the lowest among the goal point getters in this category well he's tied with Barkov so Stone out produced them offensively not that this is an offensive word I'll repeat but I I don't know how you come off but Bergeron AJ so quickly because this guy's established his reputation as the in the modern era as the best two-way player in the game right now and and uh, when I think of Stone I think still offense rugged player and just because he's playing on such a, a potent line I think that was a big reason why the plus 26 number comes up on the plus minus ditto for Barkov and his plus 12 plays with a very dynamic offensive line as well and not yet known the way Bergeron is I think it's it's between Barkov and Bergeron I'm going to give it to the guy who is linked most closely to the award in in the modern times not Patrice Bergeron for me the Masterton award is uh to the player most dedicated to hockey it 's not so much about points in this case, so i don 't want to really talk about the points situation but more of the backstory on each of these guys. We have Matt Dumba whose name and presence came to the forefront with the whole notion of the black lives matter and and uh, for trump uh, for leading the parade of, of players of color and of different ethnicities who are dotting the landscape more frequently now and and showing that this game is truly for everyone. I think he's at the forefront of that list of of players and certainly distinguishes himself with his on-ice performance. Then you've got Lindblom of Philadelphia. This guy had a really big scare with cancer, and and the fact that he came back to play in the NHL following the big challenge that he had had and the, the... and uh, the uh, adjustment to combating this disease and, and getting over it and then coming back is kudos to him for sure. And then you have Patrick Marlowe who uh, set the record for career games played in the NHL. Uh, he's played the game at a high level for many, many years. Uh, some might say this past season certainly wasn't one of those, but I think you have to look at this as maybe a farewell performance performance uh, for a distinguished career in the NHL, and and I don't know if if it applies to to the Masterton Award or, or rather a career achievement thing. So I'm going to give the award to Dumba in this case for the fact that he's leading a new era of hockey players into this NHL.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think you know the thing is you you can look at these and um, you know they they each kind of uh, check one like. My first reaction is they check one one box more than than the other. So perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to ice hockey are, are the three kind of qualities here. Um, you know, perseverance with Lindbaum, obviously. Um, you know, to to overcome the the cancer diagnosis and come back. Sportsmanship with Marlow for how many games he's played and how long he's been around the league, and and you know everybody loves uh, Patrick Marlow, and then dedication to hockey and in, in Dumba for. Um, Trying to grow the sport uh, among people of color and and to branch out from, you know, the more traditional hockey um, ethnicity, essentially, for for lack of a better way to put it. And so I think um, I agree with you. I'm going to give it to Dumba here, but I I certainly don't think there's any reason that the, the other guys couldn't win. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't be upset or disappointed if, if one of the other uh, two guys won.
1: Very well said, partner. The Norris Trophy, the best defenseman in the NHL. Of course, we talked a lot, and we will talk a lot in the playoffs, about Hedman and McCarr. But uh, Adam Fox of the Rangers had a fantastic year, leading all defensemen in terms of points with 47. Hedman finished with 45. McCarr with 44. I'll point out also, McCarr did his 44 in 44 games played and didn't get the ink that uh, Hedman did all season long, I think McCarr gets the award this year, A.J., because of the high level of play that he's shown uh, in the regular season and the fact that he missed all those games and still was within an eyelash of, of scoring just as many points as the other guys is, is a credit to him as well. So I'm going to give it to, to the Colorado defenseman on that basis primarily.
2: Yeah, I'm going to agree with you there, Paul. You know, you look, um, you know, maybe plus minus if you want to try and differentiate. Hedman was only a plus five compared to Fox at 19 and, and McCarr at 17. Power play points, they're all right there. Hedman lead, led the way with 24, Fox 23, and then McCarr 22. And so I agree. I think it comes down to the fact that he, he played less games, uh, a point per game average. So if you want to look at it at that way, he was the most productive defenseman Uh, when he was in the lineup for for the year.
1: And the Hart Trophy, this is uh, the media votes on this one for the most valuable player in the NHL. Nate McKinnon, Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, certainly the offensive numbers are there in each case, and what they did for their teams has been well-documented. I think you got to give it to McDavid as by far and away the most productive scorer in the NHL. I'm talking total points here, not just goals. Otherwise, I'd have given it to my guy, Matthews. And uh, McKinnon is uh, a worthy, as worthy a candidate as the other two guys in terms of the value that he has to his team. And I know that that's something that is in the definition. But I, I think I have a hard time not giving it to Connor McDavid after the, year that he, the regular season that he put together. Well,
2: I'm I'm going to go back to what I said. The same reason uh, I gave the Lindsay to Crosby, I, I would give the heart to met, uh, McKinnon. I, I think he's more uh, irreplaceable on on his team uh, than the other two guys here. And and you know they, they struggle when he's out of the lineup. And and you know you mentioned the point totals. Uh, you know he he's another guy that played a couple fewer games here. And so I think uh, you know McKinnon for me uh good point totals played a, a couple less
1: games and, and those were not some good games that they had without him so and then finally the award for the best coach in hockey uh to my mind barry trotz should have been on this list too aj it seems that to me he's been the best coach in hockey for years but we'll go with the names that are on this list and that's rod brendamore dean evison and joel kenville All three of these guys, former players and not so far removed from the game. So uh, maybe that's a a trend that we'll see more and more going forward. But uh, for me, Rod Brindamore is a guy, every time I see a clip of this guy talking, it's with such a passion, AJ, that... I think his players got to be primed to go through walls before they hit the ice. When he just gives one of his impassioned pregame speeches and talks, he does it with such an intensity. They show him in the dressing room; he's constantly moving and just a ball of en- a bundle of energy. And he probably translates that well onto his players. And it's no wonder, that particularly at home, they just fill the other end of the rink with shots on goal he's got he's got them coming out of cannons uh, with the motivation that he brings to the table Dean Everson's gotten the most out of his club in Minnesota uh, more than I thought he would in fact so credit to him and Joe Quenville well what can you say about this guy he's been well decorated as a Stanley Cup champion coach and uh, he certainly has led the Panthers to the top of their division uh, this season he was they were in contention for it and they'll be in contention next year when they go back to the Atlantic and a big reason why is coach Hugh uh one of the best in the league but for my money rob brindemore gets it this year absolutely
2: agree with you there paul and and you made you made the cases for it here i I don't need to say any
1: more about that rob brindemore uh wins it for me as well all right then well let's get to what's the main course on the menu and that is the two series that are underway we started with game one of tampa and the islanders buddy why don't you go through the goaltender mix and uh, where do you see an edge here if any at all well, I mean,
2: this is, you know, it's it's hard not to see an edge with Andre Vasilevsky. And, and I talked about his outstanding numbers in, in the postseason here. he He's just been heads and tails, um, you know, a, a big reason why they, they've gotten to where they are. So um, I do give the edge to him, but I will say uh, that, you know, Varlamov for his part, uh, we anticipate or will continue to be Simeon Varlamov at, at this point. Um, he's got a .929 save percentage, 2.04 goals against average, and uh, or that was the regular season. I'm sorry. So the, the playoffs, um, Varlamov's number is .930 save percentage. A little bit high on the goals against average at 2.43. You'd like obviously to see that lower, but uh, I, I have to give the edge to to Barley or uh, to um,
1: Vasilevsky uh, clearly going to be playing every game for Tampa in the Nets. My question for you, partner, when looking at this series is if Varlamov gives up a big number, do we see Sorokin replace him in a following subsequent game? I mean, the Islanders got the first one largely on the strength of what Varlamov did, but say he gets beat for a six-spot, do they turn to Sorokin in the next game, or will they get Varlamov back in the Nets?
2: I think they seriously could. I I think they'll... Um, if if Varlamov has has a really bad game, I I do think it's not impossible that we have not seen the last of Ilya Sorokin.
1: Yeah, I'm inclined to agree there. So it's a bit of a one-two punch that the Islanders have in reserve. And not that I'm wishing any ill will on Varlamov he was outstanding in the last series and in the first game of this set but it's just another bullet that they have in their chamber that, uh, that the Tampa does not so when you're looking at this series in the goalie mix certainly Vasilevsky the best of the the three I'll say but the Islanders have a one-two punch that uh, the uh, the Tampa Bay Club certainly doesn't have in their holster. In terms of breaking down the defensive depth here well I think that uh, it's pretty safe to say that the star power resides with tampa and victor hedman and I, and I mean behind him ryan mcdonough he's a few years removed from being a centerpiece defenseman in the new york circumstance since he moved over, moved over to tampa he's more well known for his work on the defensive side of the puck as opposed to being an offensive contributor and then they have they have um, mikhail sergachev who is uh, learning from uh, from both of these veteran guys to, to shape his game. I think he's going to be a dominant defenseman in this league for years to come, but certainly has an offensive upside, the likes of which maybe the, the whole Islander squad doesn't have. So they've got three credible pieces on the back end, and four or five, even if you add the likes of Savard and Cernak. Savard has played some power play time in his career. Cernak is a guy who's coming into his own and is a top four defenseman in Tampa and can play a little bit at both ends of the ice. So I I think in terms of overall game there's much more offense to like from the tampa circumstance the islanders more of a shutdown d core top to bottom when you consider adam pellick and ryan Pollock, i like to call these guys maybe the best shutdown pairing in hockey they're going to be on the ice for upwards of 23 to 25 minutes a night in this series and try to take down one of the two uh, offensive uh, juggernauts of the scoring lines on the Tampa's club. But then it doesn't drop that much when you consider Nick Letty's been around the the league for a while, and he's probably the best offensive defenseman they have here. And Scott Mayfield partners with him to give them another credible shutdown pairing. And there's even a third one with Andy Green and Noah Dobson. Uh, filling out the top six so uh, really a a tough six pack for any opposing team to kind of get through it kind of reminds me of the minefield that Montreal offers with their their big trees on the back end we'll get to them shortly but I see an offensive edge for Tampa but maybe on the defensive side I give a slight edge to the Islanders in terms of breaking down the defensive acumen of these uh, groups.
2: Well, I would just add, like, don't sleep on Noah Dobson. This is a guy, he's got seven assists in, in the 13 games here. Four of those have come uh, on the power play, so he's he's getting, you know, some big minutes there. And so he's he's maybe the one player that I think can add some offense from that, that blue line. Uh, certainly not to the level of, of Victor Hedman, but I, I do think there are um, – there is, there is some offense there. Uh, in terms of the forward complement, I'll, I'll take us right into that yeah. ball. You know, you've got, uh, for the Islanders, I'll start there. You know, I talked about the the depth that they're able to offer. Leo Komarov, Matthew Barzell, and Jordan Everly. Uh, Everly and Barzell really found their offensive games uh, in the second series there. Bolivier, Brock Nelson, and Josh Bailey as the second line have been cruising Uh, throughout the postseason and then you add in a third scoring line that seems to finally have have found its way in Kyle Palmieri, Jean-Gabriel Pajot and for now Travis Zajac I assume uh, if Oliver Wallstrom is is cleared to play at some point he's likely to slot in uh, for Zajac um, in that spot but right now out and then of course their fourth line has gotten all the press about being you know the best fourth line in hockey and, and Matt Martin, Casey Zizekas and Cal Clutterbuck. So this is a really deep team. That's got some really quality offensive players. Uh, again, you know, I said earlier, they they get talked about the defensive side of the park, but they've got plenty of offense here. Uh, they, you know, they don't have the big names that you have in Tampa. And obviously Nikita Kucherov on that top line with Braden point and Andre Pallad, they've got Steven Stamkos as their star on the second line. With Anthony Sorelli and Alex Kaloran. Now, here's where I might give the Islanders a bit of an edge because, you know, I just don't think Barkley, Gaudreau, Yanni Gord and Blake Coleman is at the same level of the Islanders third line. And, and obviously, you know, the, the fourth line is uh, got some grit to it. And, and Patrick Maroon, Tyler Johnson. And then Ross Colton rounding out that group. But I, I do think the further down you get in the lineup, uh, I, I think it does trend a little bit more in the Islanders' favor here.
1: Yeah, I think you can't speak enough to what John gabriel Peugeot has meant to lengthening their offense uh, on the island. And uh, Travis Ajak has yet to get on track in these playoffs. He's just uh, He's been known as a strong playmaking center much of his career, but he got shifted to the wing in this setup. And then Cal Palmieri, has already shown his value in these playoffs as a a top offensive producer and that's a pretty nice recipe for a third line uh, to me the third line you mentioned on Tampa's side is kind of more uh, a higher octane version of the fourth line of the Islanders if you will they play the game the same way but they don't score very much and so that's the edge that the Islanders third line does have Uh, in terms of the six-pack up front for Tampa I think you got to give them the edge over the six-pack of the Islanders but it's not as big as as it once was particularly With Barzell and Brock Nelson, a tremendous one two punch that is scoring together at this stage in the playoffs. And people look at Leo Komarov's name in that top six, AJ. And they say, "What the heck's he doing there?" But he's doing—he's doing a lot of the spade work, though, just like a guy like Zach Hyman did for the Maple Leafs' top six forwards. And that's why he's earned a place there. He's giving space, creating space, and doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the corners and on the defensive side of the responsibility. So the guys like Barzal and Everly can free wheel a little bit offensively. So you can't really sell that part short. And you remember when they scored that go—that go-ahead, go-ahead goal? It was on a line change, and, and Barzal just made a beeline for the offense blue line, not worrying about the defensive responsibilities that were uh, just creating that opportunity for him, so the uh, change of possession he just took off like a bolt because he says i 'm on offense here and and turned that play into a quick goal off a line change so it just speaks to the value of the defensive conscience that 's behind him and allows him to play that way so anyway, we break down this series position by position, but when it comes to making the prediction on the series outcome. Even though the Islanders lost game one, I'm still saying Tampa's going to win this series, AJ. They just have too many weapons up front, and I've given the edge in terms of the offense from the back end, and certainly we've got to give them a little bit of an edge in goal, too, uh, although it's pretty close. I'm going to give the defending champs this series in six games. What's your call?
2: Well, let's see. What happened for the Islanders in the first round? They won in six. What happened in the second round? They won in six, and I think I'm going to stick with that trend. They're going to win here in six we already saw them steal game one in tampa uh, i expect the the lightning will, will come back they'll, they'll win game two um they'll potentially split on long island and they'll go home tampa will take uh game five at home uh, and then they'll close it out in, in six so uh yeah i
1: i think isles in six just keep rolling all right so we're going to see a new champion according to you i hope to hell it's not montreal don't make me talk a lot in this next segment okay why don't you lead <laughs> us into the discussion of the goalies between montreal and vegas two guys with a french canadian background uh in a, well not not really the french canadian background let's say mark andre Fleury at one end and Kerry uh, price at the other end Uh, of course Price comes from the western part of Canada and uh, he's the darling of of Montreal fans though right now and people in that province though at the moment over uh, one of their own and that's uh, Marc-Andre Fleury so a tough one to break down yeah, I mean, it's
2: it's uh, it's hard to give either side an edge here. Right. You know, you look at um, you want to talk, you know, career wins. You've got flurry at four ninety two Carey price at, at three sixty. So a, a little bit further behind before four less years in the league. So certainly he could be um, a factor in the top. Um, you know, if you, if you give him an extra four years, uh, certainly he'd be right there in the mix. So. Uh, it's, it's hard to it's hard to really give an edge in terms of statistics and, and player, you know, player breakdown. So uh, I'm going to go X factor that gives the Golden Knights the edge. And that is simply the fact that Carey Price doesn't have the same level of hardware as Marc-Andre Fleury, specifically those three stanley cup championships uh the flower knows what it takes to get it done and i think that's maybe the one slight edge but i it it is thin uh thinnest of margins that i would give him the edge there
1: yeah it's crazy to think that one of these guys is going to lose four four out of seven because you don't you look at them and you think how hard is it going to be to beat these guys four out of seven games in each case? So uh, it's going to be a telltale sign, but uh, I think it's a wafer-thin advantage, and I might even give it to Kerry Price the way he's playing right now. Out of his mind, uh, level of play in the last seven games they've played, all to, all told, all wins, actually. So uh, when we look at the defense cores, I mentioned the trees on the back end for Montreal. I'm talking about four big defensemen who are their top four Guys back there and Shea Weber, Joel Edmondson, Brett Kulak, and Ben Sherrod. Only Weber is the guy that you might mention as a, as a credible offensive piece. But even that side of his game has been wanting in these playoffs. I think he's playing hurt, to be honest with you, AJ. And so the the way that uh, they are performing, though, they kind of collapse around price, and they've made it a minefield in the close area in front of the net. And they're saying to Kerry, you handle the long shots. We'll make sure nobody gets in too tight. And that's the, the way that they've chosen to play. They've added a different look on their third pairing with Alexander Romanov, finally getting into this playoff uh, fans were clamoring for this youngster to make an appearance finally he does and he looks like he's entrenched now as a third pairing guy with eric gustavs and another guy whose game best game assets are his offensive side so these guys will be insulated it's the four pack uh, ahead of them that's going to play a lot of the minutes but they offer quite a change of pace and, and a bit of a wild card look Uh, They can both play on the offensive end of the ice, and I wonder in a matchup game if if Vegas is going to look to try and isolate these guys in in as many defensive starts or defensive zone traps uh, as they can so that the top six in Vegas forwards can take advantage of the fact these guys are a little bit soft defensively. So that's the way I break down their side. On the Vegas side, there's the star power there on on that group, and that begins with Alex Petrangelo, Alec Martinez, and Shea Theodore, a three-pack of defensemen that can play the game at both ends of the rink but are more known for what they do uh, offensively, I'll say. Uh, Maybe Alec Martinez is more known for a two-way, but Theodore and Petrangelo, real good weapons on the offensive side of the puck as well as playing defense. And then they rounded out with Zach Whitecloud, who's had a very nice playoff for me and Nick Holden a placeholder on that third pairing who's been very steady defensively as well but uh, in terms of star power I think I give the edge to to Vegas here
2: yeah I mean I, I think you have to too when you consider that Jeff Petri is is out of the lineup I, that's a huge blow to them um, you know he practiced today in a non-contact jersey so certainly isn't going to play game one probably you know, I would call that doubtful to play game two if he hasn't been cleared for contact. And then you've got, you know, more of a depth guy, and and maybe he wouldn't even play if they do decide to stick with Romanoff. But, but you know, John Merrill being out for a while, that, that's hurting their their blue line as well. So for for me, I think the injuries uh you know are are a big factor here to to get to lose, you know, Petri, especially to to have him not in the lineup, I think is a huge blow. Um, for them and, and is going to stretch their, their depth there. And, and as you said, the star power all goes to the other side of the ice. In terms of the, the forward compliments here, again, uh, more injuries causing more problems for, for the Montreal Canadiens. Obviously, Jake Evans has been out since um, that, that first game. Jonathan Druin's been away from the team, uh, so they haven't had him at all for, for a while. Thomas Tatar has been banged up and, and out of the lineup, so they've really... Um, had to rely on kind of everybody chipping in uh, due to those injuries. Uh, Aturi Lackanen gets the look on the top line without Evans alongside Philip Deneau and Brendan Gallagher. The second line, I think, is where this team earns its bread and butter with Tyler Toffoli, Nick Suzuki, and Cole Caulfield. Um, But even their third line, Paul Byron, Jasper Cottonemi, Josh Anderson is, is a solid group, albeit maybe a little less offense coming from them. And then this would be what I would maybe pick as the best fourth line in hockey right now. And Yoel, Armia, Eric Stahl, and Corey Perry, I think they um, are all veteran guys capable of producing. And they have shown that. On the Vegas side, it's a little more top-heavy, in, in my opinion here. You've got your first line, Max ready, Chandler Stephenson, and Mark Stone. Second line, Jonathan Marchessault, William Carlson, and Riley Smith. It drops off for me a little bit there in Matthias Janmark, Nick, uh, Nicholas Roy, or Nicholas Waugh, rather, and uh, Alex Tuck. And then the fourth line, I think, just uh, is, is built differently um, than, than some of the other fourth lines. You know, Ryan Reeves, Keegan Colasar and William Carey are going to be a a bit of a rough and tumble group. Obviously, having Ryan Reeves, any line that he's on is going to be a little more rough and tumble uh, there. So I I do think uh, maybe you give the edge in the top six to, to the Golden Knights. But if you're looking for complete depth of the forward group, I would give it the edge to the Habs here.
1: I'm kind of looking forward to seeing if those four, line, four fourth lines will match up against one another for any significant periods of time. The experience factor has to be heavily in favor of Montreal with Stalin and Perry carrying that flag. But it's the physicality that the fourth liners for for Vegas can can if they can take liberties with these guys, all hell could break loose here. I think taking on the venerable part of the Montreal lineup with the respect they have for their veterans here so it'll be interesting to see how that turns out but it's the third line for the canadians that is is a real enigma for me paul byron and josh anderson it's been hard to identify these guys in the postseason josh anderson did get the first goal of these playoffs Against the Maple Leafs, but he's been totally missing in action ever since then. AJ it was his only point so far in the postseason. For all the skill that this guy brings to the table and all the money they're paying him, he's not delivering right now. And you wonder is he hurt or what? Uh, because is, he's just not playing very well. Not har- very hard to notice. And it's 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 a wonder to me that Jesperi Kotkaniemi has been as notable as he has because he's like he's like a, the old he- the old story about playing center like a helicopter. You got no wings. So, <laughs> so uh, really credit to him for being as prominent as he's been in the playoffs for me Suzuki and Caulfield and Toffoli that's the key to the offense for Montreal obviously you know, the first line that we list on the Rotowire depth chart Lekin and Deneau and Gallagher more more primed for their defensive responsibilities that I expect out of them Deneau clearly their shutdown center but you, and you think he's going to get the opportunity to play against Vegas's top line which features Chandler Stevenson Stone and Pacioretty that's going to be their responsibility but to me the wild card in the set is the second line for the Knights, and I've talked about this a lot on the DraftKings format, uh, so you'll hear it first here in, in our podcast, but uh, so Carlson and Riley Smith, they hold the key in this series for me, AJ. If they ex- exert their advantage, I think that this could be a cakewalk for the, the Knights. If these guys play well, if they don't, they're in for a dogfight. So with that, we come to the point in the show where we have to put our predictions together for this series, and we are already on record. We said this already on the other network, but we'll repeat it here. I'm on the Knights in five games, uh, I think, the key to Montreal's hopes will ride with game one. If they can get an early knockdown uh, of the Knights, this would be the opportunity, I think, to catch them uh, a little cold uh, without knowing too much about Montreal and get that surprise first win to cause some doubt. But if they don't, this will be a quick series. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And, and I agree, Paul. I'm on Vegas in, in five. I, I think they're just um, a shade better um, all around in terms of what they can put on the ice. save. They've got all the offense. They've got the net binding, um, and so I, I really think they'll they'll dispatch this pretty quickly. Um, you know, as as you alluded to, uh, you know, Montreal traveling um, obviously for the first few games that's a big factor, uh, and we've seen since since they came into the league the Vegas flu is a real thing, um, and it, mm-hmm. I think it'll be. Uh, accentuated here by the sheer fact that the, the Canadians haven't played really in front of fans. I think they got 500 um, health care workers at, yeah. at the last couple of games yeah. or something, but yeah. um, not not the packed house that they're going to experience
1: when they get into Las Vegas. That's right. Now, I wonder later in the series, if they do open the house up in Montreal, uh, that remains to be seen, but you're quite right that they haven't faced a hostile audience yet in these post and it'll be pretty rabid down in uh, in uh, the capital of of the entertainment world in the United States for me that wraps up our look around the league, folks. Uh, thanks for listening to Podcast with Statsman and AJ. And as we implied, if you want to get more of us, don't forget to check out the DraftKings uh, site on YouTube to see our daily prognostications and uh, in a Q&A with the fine folks over there at DraftKings who uh, apparently lo- they like us, AJ. They love us, in fact. They're having <laughs> us every- back every day. So we're having a ball with that, and thanks to them. Uh, so uh, you've been listening to RotorWire signature fantasy hockey podcast podcast please remember to send your comments or questions on twitter follow me paul bruno at statsman 22 and you can follow aj 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 24 let me try it again at aj schultz 24 as always we invite you to listen in the podcast to get our tips to say out of the competition in your fantasy hockey planning and research don't forget you'll the next time you'll see us on this pod is to preview the stanley cup final and review the two rounds that are taking place right now so long everybody